My name is Nathan Anderson. If we haven't met, uh, it is my hope that we would do so. Um, I get the opportunity to, uh, to give Bill a little break today. Uh, so we have a couple communicators here, Rick um, and Ken and I will sometimes fill in and give Bill uh, a, a pause here in the action. Um, uh, I serve on our church's council, uh, the church council. So uh, if you have questions about how the church operates, uh, I invite you to ask that. And we also meet at the Fry Farm campus uh, on the fourth Thursday of every month uh, to discuss what's happening in the life of our church. Um, this series that we're doing is like, it's one of my favorite kinds of series that we do as a church. Um, you know, it's just First John, right? That's the love it. There's, there's no fancy graphic package. There's not a lot of fluff and creativity that went into this. Um, we don't have like matching t-shirts for this series. Um, we didn't have to like, it's not themed after like Marvel characters, right? We don't have like cutouts in the lobby and uh, we didn't like, you know, take a popular movie and like read, like it's not like Top Gun Apostles, right? We didn't, we didn't do that with this series. Uh, I like Top Gun though, that was pretty good. Like the old one and the new one, well, they're pretty much the same movie, but it was good. Um, sorry for the spoiler. Uh, I believe this series is better though because we're just, my kitten's catching this mic too. Um, I believe this is better because we're just working through God's word verse by verse and talking through it. We're studying it together. Uh, we're actually working together to memorize John 1, 1, verse 1 um, this summer. Uh, and our desire from this series is to equip you to study God's word, to, to, to be able to walk through uh, this text alongside of you and to demonstrate how uh, to study the Bible. Um, that you might begin, if you haven't, to study the Bible for yourself. Um, and if you, you have been studying, that this might equip you to take that, uh, take that work further, that you would be better equipped to move forward. We, we believe that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts through God's Word uh, to transform us from an old pattern, an old pattern of thought that had us dead in our trespasses and, and enslaved to sin, and it actually puts us into a new form, into a new mold, uh, and makes us alive in Christ, and our minds are renewed by this word. And so uh, I, I mentioned in my intro that I am uh, part of our church council. Um, we often discuss the challenges that are facing our culture and our congregation uh, in those meetings. And a couple of years ago, um, I made a pretty critical declaration um, that I believe to be true. This is pretty judgmental for me to say. Uh, and I said it in that venue, so I want to say it to you as well. We we're sort of talking about some of the challenges that we were facing. Um, and I said, I don't believe that on the whole, on average, that we have, um, that, that our congregation is biblically literate. That we don't actually filter the way that we look at life through the lens of the gospel. That when we wrestle with decisions in our life, on average, right, on the, on the whole, if you just go across that, we look at it and go, are we actually having our mind conform to the Word of God? Are we wrestling with decisions through a lens of Scripture, or is it just our experiences leading us decision by decision, and are we, we being led that way? Now, before you get offended by that, uh, I can't spell illiterate without uh, the autocorrect uh, active in my word processing tool. So like, uh, I am not saying that I am smarter, right? This is not a matter of intelligence. This is a matter of equipping. I, what I believe is we uh, as a church have failed in equipping uh, our body to study and know God's word. And so that's a driving force behind this series at the, the heart of what we are studying here. 
um, that we might know God's Word, that we study it for ourselves, have it written on our hearts in a way that transforms us, um, like the author in Hebrews described, that transformative power of God's Word. So if you're thinking that it's too late for you, right, that you missed out on your window to study and know God's Word, or that it is too complex that you'll never understand it, um, that's a lie. That's just a lie, right? So reject that lie. It is not too complex. Uh, there are things that are complex that you can't understand. Like, I can't understand how the transmission works, right? I understand, like, when to shift, and I can drive, you know, a manual. But, like, if it were to break, I, I can't get my mind around, like, how the clutch, like, this doesn't make sense to me. Um, even though I'm relatively mechanical in other ways, like, I can't get my mind around that, that's not what we're facing here, right? This is not that much of a, um, a challenge that you can't possibly get the mental assent to understand it. Uh, what we're studying this morning is written by somebody that was not a scholar, but a fisherman. We believe 1 John is written by John, and in his culture growing up, as he was walking through um, his early education, um, in his day, they didn't have after-school specials, right? There wasn't this, you can be anything you set your mind to, right? There was no positive reinforcement. That wasn't a, we didn't work that concept out yet in the first century. So it was, um, as he's going through, rabbis would be picking out people that demonstrated, young men who demonstrated the capacity, the smart, the best and the brightest. And they'd say, I want to find somebody who has the ability to take my teaching and carry it forward. John wasn't one of those that got picked, right? I don't know if he, they had guidance counselors back in that day, but I imagine his guidance counselor meeting was something like, hey, so I'm thinking about, you know, he's, John's got all these ideas. His guidance counselor's like, hey, what, what'd your dad do? And he's like, what, what, what do you mean? Like, I, I, I don't, what'd your dad do again? He's a fisherman, right? Yeah, I, I, I think next week maybe you just uh, stay home with dad, right, and learn how to fish, and th that's going to be it for you. You're Further education is done here, right? There was, there, there was no encouragement like that. But, but that's who Jesus picked and called and equipped for this ministry. And so he writes this beautiful letter that we're reading this morning. Um, and you don't need an advanced degree to understand it. But you do need the Holy Spirit to open your eyes to it. So if you're thinking, well, man, that's easy for you to say. You know, you're on stage and you're preaching, right? You, you know some of this stuff. Um, I'll just... I'll share how I learned, and it's not how everybody learns, but here's how I learned. Uh, in my early 20s, we attended this small little church uh, where we used to live in Uniontown, um, and uh, they had a Bible study that was before or after this, the, the regular worship service. I can't remember, maybe in between two of them. Uh, and this Bible study was led by uh, a guy that was a, he was a mentor to me. He's a very good family friend, my dad, uh, and he used to work together. Um, but he ran this Bible study faithfully for years at this small church, and he would just pick a book up, open it, and read word by word through it. Read a verse, talk about it. Read a verse, talk about it. Read a verse, talk about it. He pronounced Deuteronomy in a funny way. I remember that. But like the way that he taught through that and it would answer questions, it shaped the way that I studied the Bible, right? I approached it the way that he approached it because he, he modeled that for me. And then later on in like my mid-20s, uh, when we were at, came to Charter Oak, I was uh, spending some time with Pastor Chris, and Pastor Chris was investing in me, and he, he turned me on to this thing called the Elephant Room, uh, and it was like this, uh, this venue where these pretty successful, relatively well-known pastors 
all got into a room and they talked about the elephant in the room. It was like, hey, let's debate these, these theological differences between us. Let's talk about these things that are some controversial topics. And I just remember like watching them. Now, some of these pastors have since had some some pretty dramatic falls from grace in public ways. Um, but there, there were some that were debating in that room. And I remember like watching like Matt Chandler and David Platt talk about these topics. And they were just boom, 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 quoting scripture. And they could just tell that like it was in them. Like they, were, they, they just knew the word and they had such command over it in the way that they were talking. And I was struck by like they weren't that much older than me. I was like, they're my age, right? And they've, they've been saturated and they know this stuff. And so uh, from, from that, I was like, okay, who's Matt Chandler? So I started listening to his sermons and then David Platt. And then, you know, you hear them reference John Piper. So it goes, oh, that's Desiring God. There's tons of resources there. I listened to John Piper and then, then you know, listen to Tim Keller. You get turned on to these, you know, these heavyweights. And I would just, as I started to listen to them teach through the word, um, I grew an appetite for it. And so, like, anytime I'm in the car, on a plane, uh, I'm working out, I'm, you know, I'm working and I can, you know, spreadsheet work, it's mindless, I just put that on in the background and let that wash over me. And before you, I knew it, I just had this insatiable appetite for it. And like, right now, I just discovered um, a podcast series that is walking through the Bible from a Jewish perspective, like from a rabbinical teaching perspective. And so, like, this Eastern Jewish culture, like, there's a whole other way of looking at Genesis that I didn't realize, and there's this beauty if you can understand the Jewish perspective and how it's written, and it's, you know, like, how do they memorize it, and it's, it, I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. I'm so far into this journey, and yet my mind is being sort of, like, I was blown away. Like, I, I remember, like, I just got into it. I was like, Kathy, you've got to listen to this, and so I was, like, sharing what I had learned, and that appetite right now is as strong as it's ever been, and so what we're trying to accomplish this morning, we're trying to accomplish in this, in this series is to get you started on that journey or get you to progress on that journey wherever you are so that your appetite might grow, so you develop a taste for it, right? There's some things that maybe you didn't have an appetite for as a young person that you develop the taste for later, right? And now you can't imagine living without that, and so that's our desire, trying to take where you are, get you into God's Word, and so you would grow to thirst and hunger for more of it. So our, our challenge before we jump into the text, we're going to go back and uh, we're going to go through our memory verse, um, and, you know, why would we memorize something? Um, you know, part of our kids' curriculum, we, we homeschool, part of that is there's a ton of memorization, and we were listening to somebody talk about, like, why memorize things? Um, and he had this compelling argument, which was, okay, what would you want to have with you if everything else was taken away from you? Right? If you were stripped of everything, right? If you were a prisoner, captive, your meals were provided to you, you had just the clothes on your back. You had nothing else. What would you want with you? You want songs. You want scripture. And you want stories. And you want those in your mind. Because how do you endure that? You endure it with, with the word of God in you. So we're going to walk through our memory verse here. 1 John 1, verse 1. We'll say it together. Ready? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with the, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. All right. So I mentioned our author is John this morning. He's writing to a, a group of churches to address disputes that are going on in the life of the church. 
Uh, these are theological and behavioral issues. So theology, what you think when you think about God. There are problems with what they thought when they thought about God. And then behavior. So whatever is you know, right or wrong, that's flowing from your beliefs. The way that you act is influenced and flows from what you believe. So I'm continually struck by how relevant these letters that were written to the first century church are for us today in our culture. There, there's truly nothing new under the sun. So last week we looked at 1 John 1, uh, verse 1 through 4, and we had these key words, incarnation, fellowship, and joy. So incarnation, Jesus came in the flesh, um, and we enjoy fellowship, that Greek word koinonia, uh, with God, and we also enjoy fellowship with each other um, through faith in Jesus. And just as our fellowship is, is rooted in God's word, it, it grows as we see people coming together in faith, and, and then our joy is made complete. So um, uh, this is in my notes, but uh, just like hearing Liz sing this morning, like there was just this spark of like being back together um, with friends that we hadn't seen, and like, like why are we friends? Like wh- what's that friendship based in? Why is it so good? And to see them, they arrived and pulled into our driveway yesterday, and like the kids were just like in shock for a minute, like we're together again, right? This reunited moment, and then a couple hours pass, and the, the laughter and the joy and that rhythm of like they, they, they snap right back to it. It's been a year, and they snap back into that relationship. I'm like, oh man, this is what heaven's going to be like, right? There's, there's these, this relationship that we have, and there's a joy that comes, and, and it's because Christ came in the flesh, so that we could be united, right? United to him and also united to one another. So that theological foundation um, is based on who you think Jesus is and what he taught, and that's what we're going to dive into today. So 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So we we finished last week by reading, we write this to make our joy complete. So we we think that our joy comes from focusing on what we want or what we need, that our desires being fulfilled will lead to that joy. But the Bible says that joy actually starts with seeing the light and seeing God as light. Um, Aristotle said, like, if you know yourself, that's the beginning of wisdom. And Proverbs says that, Fearing the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom. And so uh, we're going to see in this, as we walk through this text, the perspective is flipped with the word of God. It changes how we think about things. So in this verse, we're going to work through underline God is light. And then in the margin uh, in your Bible, we're going to write the word holy. So God is light. Um, It means that God is the source and the measure of all that is true. God is holy. So holy is this idea, this notion of being set apart or separated. Um, When we study scripture, here's a pretty good concept or a rule to follow. It's called the rule of first mention. Some call it the law of first mention. I don't think it's actually a law because it's not always true, but it's a good rule to apply when you're studying God's word. Um, It's when you come across a term, right, like this, God is light. Um, When you come across a term, you go, okay, what does this term mean? It's a good idea to go back to the first time that term was used. 
If you go back to its first mention, it can help you understand the gist. So how is this term used in, in its first mention, and then how is it used throughout Scripture? So if you have a study Bible, those little footnotes that have other Scripture reference, that's the other mentions, right? It'll tell you to go to this verse, go to that verse, go to that verse, and you can see the other places where that has been mentioned. Um, another, if you, know, if you don't have a study Bible, blueletterbible.org. I've shared this a bunch of times, blueletterbible.org. It's kind of like a play on words, like the old red letter with the Gutenberg printing press, right? Jesus' words were in red. The blue letter is just like references, so it's links. So basically, you click on a verse. You can look up any verse. Click on the verse. It breaks out all the words. You can click on a word, and you can go, oh, that's what that word means in Greek. That's what the word means in Hebrew. But you can also get a list of the other verses where it's mentioned. So first time that we see light in the Bible is back at the beginning. So keep your finger in First uh, John. We're going to flip back to the beginning of your Bible. Uh, we're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. First book, first chapter, we're going to read verses 3 and 4. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. All right, so we have three lights in here to underline. Right? Underline the three lights. Now, underline darkness. Okay? And I want you to circle the word separated. Back in your margin, that's holy, right? Right, holy in the margin. So God is perfectly good, and we have right here in the song of creation, he is speaking creation into existence, and there's a series of separations, right? He separates the light from the dark. He separates the day from the night, evening from the morning, the earth and the sky, the water and the land, he creates them male and female. We see God as completely holy and completely good, creating this pattern of separation. He's separating these things, and he says that creation is good. And throughout our Bible, we see this contrast between good and evil, and we see this reference between light and darkness. So the good news is that God is holy. He is unlike anyone or anything else. God is perfectly faithful, and he is just. And that's the foundational uh, message of this letter, that light is truth and holiness, and darkness is sin and despair. Now, I said that's the good news. Now we've got to go to verse 6 because there's some bad news that comes with that. Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. All right, so underline darkness and lie. And in your, your, your margin there, beside, um, um, beside do not live, write sin. Right? That's sin. If we do not live it, that's sin. So nine times John writes about sin from verses 1, 6 to chapter 2, verse 2. He references sin more than more than once a verse, right? The pace at which he's talking about this is important to him. So the problem isn't that we just like sin occasionally or we sometimes sin. Um, the problem is we are sinners at our core, right? To the core of our being is part of who we are. We are bent towards sin and we are disobeying God. And our sin is a rebellion against God, refusing to hear him, to obey his word. We don't want to see him as God. We want to be our own God. And so how often do we actually stop and feel the weight of that, 
right, recognize the weight of our sin. That God is perfect and holy and just, and we're the exact opposite. That, that, we, that we are sinners, that we're imperfect, we're prone to evil, that we're unfaithful, um, and as a result, we deserve judgment. Now, I, I told you this was, this was bad news, right? We've turned from light to darkness, from good to evil, and as a result, you and I deserve the just judgment due before a holy God. We deserve eternal death. Now, in our culture, um, there is a ton of talk about addressing, addressing the injustices of the world, right? There's all kinds of calls for justice. We want justice. We want justice. We want justice, except when it's God, right? Except when it's God, the one who's delivering the justice. Then we don't want him to be judged judge. We want, we want, we want him to, to forgive us. We want, well, how can a loving God condemn sinners? How can a loving God send people to hell? And I think we've got the question backwards. In, in this, this letter from John, it leads us to ask the question another way. How can God be just if he allows sinners into heaven, right? He asks it another way. When we are in the dark, our thoughts are completely self-centered, right? When we're in the light, he allows us to see it from a, a God-centered perspective. Our perspective shifts in the light. So I've heard John Piper uh, use this illustration. I'm going to uh, just crib it and use it too. Um, my kids just went to Laurel Caverns a few weeks ago. Everybody in Laurel Caverns, right? You go through the cave, you duck through, right? There's a guy with a little headlamp leading you through. Not a lot of light in some places. Um, imagine uh, being like in a cave, right? But you're, you're, you're by yourself and you've gotten lost in this cave, and it's, it's like dark, like no light, your light's out, your flashlight doesn't work, and you're feeling your way along the walls. Like you got your hand on the wall, you're doing that whole shuffle foot thing because you don't know where to step, uh, and you got your other hand sort of out in front of you, and you're feeling your way through this cave, and you've been in here for hours, and you're scared, and you don't know your way out, and you're just trying to feel your way through this thing, and then you feel something, you know, cold and sharp, and metal, and so you, you back up from that, right? You start heading a different direction because that, that feels dangerous from, from, from your perspective. And then you start feeling along, you're getting tired, and you feel something, you know, something, something soft and, and warm, and you're cold, and so you snuggle up against that because it's nice and warm, and it's soft, and it's comfortable, and the lights come on, and you've just crawled up under the belly of a beast that's there to devour you. And that shiny, cold thing was the sword of the radiant Christ, who is there to destroy the beast and set you free. And because your perspective is wrong, you've cut it up to the wrong thing. We do that. So here's the greatest news. Verse 7. But if you walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So underline light. It's in there twice. Get light. Or circle two words. Blood and purifies. So we're shifting our perspective, right? It's less about us, and our perspective is more about God. He is the source of light. He is in the light. We're walking in the light. When we see later in First John is that, yes, Jesus absolutely died for us, but it wasn't just for us, right? We are not the center of the universe. Jesus' death was also obedience to the Father. If you look at uh, John 12, verse 27 and 28, it says this, Now my soul is troubled. 
what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is Jesus in his most difficult hour facing the cross and what's driving him there, what's leading him there, the glory of the name of the Father. It's that obedience. The crowning moment in all of human history, Jesus died to satisfy the wrath of God, the righteous wrath due to sinners while showing love that God has to sinners at the same time. So this is the, the pinnacle of our faith. So Jesus is obedient to the Father, and he died for us. Now, with that great news also comes a warning. It's just like uh, if you're a parent and you've ever given an instruction and you know how your kids are going to sometimes like manipulate that instruction, right? They're going to go, did they really say that? I'm going to, you know, find the loophole. Um, John sort of anticipates that and a warning comes with it. And so 8 through 10 says this, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. All right, so let's do a little work here. We've got a circle claim. It's in here twice. There's two claims. And also circle confess. All right? The claim to be without sin is it's self-deception. We've deceived ourselves. Um, and that reason we're deceived is because the truth of God is not in us. We don't have the light in us. We're not in the word. The truth is not in us, and so we are deceived. Um, when we are converted, right, what, when conversion is, is simply this, we confess our sins, and we proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We believe that the truth takes up res residence in our heart, that the light of God comes in our hearts through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Um, and this is an important point that John is making, right? When we become a Jesus follower, it's not that we, uh, we, we immediately live this life where sin is no longer a part of it, right? It's not that the struggle is over, right? We will continue to have this battle against sin that lasts our lifetime. Um, God's light enters us, it reveals sin. So the mark of a disciple isn't that we are sinless, it's that we have a sin consciousness, that we have an awareness to it. We have a light shining on it, and we become aware. So a sign of maturity in Jesus is this deep and abiding desire to flee from sin, right? To see it, to call it out, and to run from it. So we don't have this, this posture where we're like, you know, proud, and we're leaning up against the cross. We're like, hey, we're, we're perfect people here. Like, we're, we're the best, you know, you should, you should come be like us. We, we've got it going on. We have, a, we have a posture that we have a contrite spirit that recognizes and confesses our sin. We are aware of our weakness, and we know that we have a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, that's been imparted to us, and we say, there's room for you here too, right? Come and join us in this forgiveness. And so our great joy is that our sin is forgiven by Jesus. And the reason this is a great joy is this, this phrase here, all unrighteousness. So that word all is massive. Um, I need it to be massive. You need it to be massive because our sins are many. My sins are many, and there are some big ones, right? There are some big ones. When I say the big ones, like it immediately comes to mind. You can feel the weight of the shame that comes 
with that sin. You, you can just feel that, like you, your pulse changes. You can feel it inside you. Um, and John tells us here that Jesus purifies all of it. No sin is too great, right? Your past can be overcome, right? Your current life, if you're caught up in a pattern of sin, if there's a pattern of sin that you just keep doing over and over, and you know, I'll always be this way, that is not true, right? You can be purified from that, and there's nothing in the future. God's fully aware of it, and Jesus is able to purify it all when we confess our sin. So listen to what's on the line here uh, when, when we, when, with, with what we say about our sin, what we claim. If we claim that we don't sin, John says we're making God out to be a liar before the world. If we claim we don't have sin, we reveal that the truth isn't in us. His word isn't in us. Um, the claim of, of sinlessness and self-deception is also a claim of blasphemy, right? It is, it is a blasphemous act, and I think, you know, sometimes we say it, and sometimes we don't actually say it with our mouth that we're sinless. We just live in a way that, that, that stakes that claim. It's like the, um, uh, what's that part of speech where you don't say the, you know, uh, imperative, right? We don't say you, right? We just do, we act that way, right? It's like, you know, sorry. I'm terrible with English. Um, I was looking at Kath to help me. She didn't give me that feedback. Um, so this, this implication, right, of, of, of sinlessness, right, of this walking like, hey, I, I don't have sin. They, this was a, a thought pattern. This was something that's being taught in the first century. There's a group of people who said, oh, yeah, because I have Jesus now, I, I don't have any more sin. I, like, I don't struggle with, like, there's nothing I do is sinful. And John's saying, no, that, that's, that's not true, right? We are battling sin in this life. You actually need to confess that sin. You need to walk in the night. You need to struggle with your sin. And what's crazy is like first century, they had that problem. Today, we had that problem, yeah. right? There, there is a progressive theology, a false teaching that is spreading in, in churches in America um, that focuses on this idea that like atonement from God really isn't necessary. Does God really require bloodshed? I don't really want to focus on that part of God. That's sort of a negative story that, you know, God's bloodthirsty. He would require blood to be shed for sin or that atonement. He said, I want to focus on Jesus' life. And instead, we're going to, you know, you know, Genesis said that God made us and we're good, right? And we're going to focus on how we're good and we're going to move forward with that. And that theology, you know, it stops in chapter 2. It ignores the whole arc of Scripture, um, that we have rebelled against God and we are separated and we need that atonement. And we just saw it is his blood that purifies us. And so why do we want to equip you to study God's word? Right? Because we're not, there's, there's tons of false teaching. I just gave you one. It's, it's worn 22 times in the New Testament. 22 of the 27 books in the New Testament address false teaching because it was a problem then, it'll be a problem today. You need to be equipped to identify yourself, right? You need to be equipped to go, hey, this, this is not in alignment with God's word. This is why it's wrong. This is why we want you to dig into God's word. So let, let's go back into um, what does this all mean for us? Back to that word fellowship, that koinonia. If you look in verse 6 and 7, underline fellowship. It's there twice. Underline it. Right? 
then let's look at what destroys fellowship, right? Where it says walking in darkness in your margin, right in destroys. Walking in darkness destroys it. What preserves fellowship? Walking in the light. So by walking in the light, right in preserves. And I want you to circle walk, and beside walk, right, life, right? So your walk, how you walk, right? This is another term for how you go about life, how you go about every day. How do you interact? How do you go about life? Um, do you do it in the light or do you do it in the dark? So this fellowship that we have with God and with each other is from Christ. But what destroys a marriage is living outside of God's word. What destroys the life of somebody that, that's single is living outside of God's word. What destroys a family and erodes a family living outside of God's word. What destroys a church, what destroys a denomination, living outside of God's word. Now, contrast that with the light. What preserves marriage, singleness, what preserves a family, what preserves a church, walking in the light, confessing our sin to one another, right? You want a healthy, God-honoring marriage? If you want that for your marriage, read the Bible, live it out, confess your sin. You want a healthy, vibrant family? Read the Bible, live it out, confess your sin, right? Do you want to be a healthy, gospel-centered church? Walk in God's word, live it out, confess your sin. Um, I think this attitude of confession, it's, it's hard for me to get to, to because I'm prideful, right? I want to be, I will want to be right so often, uh, I think, you know, as a father, like, I want to, like, have these moments where I, I, you know, have a lesson. I say these things, and my kids, like, eat it up. Like, oh, father. You're like, so good. Never going to forget that, right? Like, that's, you know, get that, you know. You know my dad always said, you know, I imagine them, like, you know, like these are these things. Um, and uh, in my pride, I think we get these moments, but I don't ever, like, here's how it, here's how it actually works. Um, I've watched Kathy after a blow up with the kids, right? Those moments where, like the head spins around and like, like it's like, you know, you've, you've, you've got family. There's been moments, right? It gets ugly. Um, where she'll walk back into the room. I remember the first time like watching this, she walks back in and it's like, girl, I need to talk to you. I'm sorry. I lost my temper. I acted in a way I shouldn't have acted. I got angry, and I said some things that, that weren't right for me to say, and so I'm sorry. I'm asking for your forgiveness, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask the Lord to forgive me for that too. And like, I'm like, whoa, you're telling them you're wrong? You know, they're the kids. We don't got to tell them we're wrong. Like, 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 no, she confesses that, and the heart of my children softened. And the message is written so deeply into their heart that they'll never forget that, right? And I've seen them now start to demonstrate that as they mature, where they have, you know, those moments and they blow up and storm out and stomp and huff and, you know, like you hear them, right, frustratingly across the house and you're like, I can hear your attitude, right? Um, and then later on, they'll come back and be like, 
Dad, I'm, I'm sorry. I overreacted. I shouldn't have, right? They're learning to walk in that because it's been demonstrated for them. And so if you, if, you want, if you want to see these things live out in a vibrant way, adopt this pattern of walking in the light. Right? We, we are not perfect. We serve a perfect God who imparts to us his righteousness. And it's available through our confession and our repentance. And so if you're not in the light, I invite you today to, to make that decision to confess it and to bring it before the Lord, to confess what you need to confess to one another and to walk out in the light and trust that God is going to use that for his glory and for your good to lead you ultimately into joy. Would you pray with me? Lord God, I pray that you would lead us to be people of the light, that you would um, use your word in such a way that we would trust it, that we wouldn't recognize our where we mess up and instead run and hide in the darkness and try to make clothes for ourselves and try to cover our own shame, Lord, but that we would um, be a people who walk in the light. I pray for us individually, for every life in this room, that we would, um, any guilt and shame that we're dealing with and sin that we're walking in, that we would confess it before you. I pray for uh, your spirit to lead us out of that and your word to lead us out of that sin into holiness. I pray for relationships and marriages where um, sin has come between us, Lord, that we would confess that to you and confess that to one another and that you would restore and reconcile because that's the work that you do, Lord, and we trust you in that. We pray for uh, our body of believers and this church and this community that we have, um, that we might have fellowship, we may have koinonia genuinely because we are walking in the light. Um, Lord, give us a joy that flows from your forgiveness and your grace. We praise you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.